Amazing Grace Kona welcomes you to today's lesson from Pastor Izzy Manzo. Our prayer is that today's lesson will spiritually feed and uplift you. Now, here's Pastor Izzy. We're going to pick up our study in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, guys, listen, if somebody doesn't believe, does their unbelief negate God's faithfulness? Does that turn off God? Just because they say, well, I don't believe it. I don't believe there's God. Does that make him disappear? No. I use that example of when I went to the circus and I saw that little stool that they balanced all these people on. And then afterwards, they brought out an elephant and they put the elephant, just one leg on the stool. And I thought, it's not going to hold. It, it looks so flimsy to my eye. It looked like a couple tubes. It looked really light. Maybe it's titanium and we just didn't know what titanium was back then. Because these guys had this little stool and they stacked clowns and a whole bunch of people on it. And it was like 30, 50 people up in the air, all balanced on this little round stool. Then they bring out an elephant. Well, first the ringmaster, he's out there going, how many people do you think we can fit on this stool? How much weight do you think it can hold? And you're looking at the thing, you're thinking, he's picking it up and spinning it around and it looked like it was just like a feather. It's like a, a little stool you put your feet on. It's a little round thing. And he flips it around, he sets it on the ground and he starts bringing out these folks and the acrobats and the clowns and they start stacking on it and getting on each other's shoulders. There's just like this pyramid of people Upside down pyramid stacked onto this little teeny stool. As a little kid, I'm like waiting for it to break. I mean, come on, man. And one more person is going to snap. They're all going to come down. And it looks like for sure it's going to be curtains. But then they bring out this elephant. They have all the people get down. The elephant puts one foot on it. And then he goes like this. And he lifts his back foot. And then he puts his other one out like that. And, and then he's like on one leg. The elephant's like this. And then guys start climbing up on the elephant's head. And then along the back. And then they start lifting each other. And they put all the same people who are just on the stool, now on the elephant, what is on the stool, all balanced. And the ringmaster, after everyone left, he said, do you think that this stool will hold me now, my weight? And it was such a silly question. I'm like, dude, it just held an elephant. And like 30, 50 people on top of the elephant. It didn't snap then. Of course it's going to hold your and I'm thinking, why is he asking this question? That stool is proven. I mean, that thing can hold weight. And I started thinking, when I was preparing this study, I was thinking, it says, if some would not believe, will it negate God's faithfulness? Maybe you come to the circus late and you didn't see the whole act with everybody and the elephant and, and the thing, and you come out right when the guy is ready to just say, so will this hold my weight? This little stool. And he was kind of a big guy, the ringmaster. Someone new might say, I don't know if you should sit on that. It looks kind of flimsy. But if you would have asked anyone in the audience who had seen the act, what just took place, if you asked them, will that stool hold that one dude? They'll be going, are you kidding? Of course it'll hold him. It holds an elephant with a whole bunch of people. It's going to hold one person. The reliability of the stool in the people who have already seen what it can do, it's established in their minds. They know. But if some person comes into the tent and says, I don't think it's going to work. Does their unbelief make the stool weak? Does their unbelief make it not work? By the way, this is the intro to Paul's argument. Because some people don't believe there's a God. Does that make God disappear? Does it make him not work? You can't rest your weight on his shoulder. What, he can't hold you? 
those of you that have been a Christian long enough, you know, can God hold you? Can he carry you through those hard times? Amen, right? But to somebody who doesn't know it, they might think, I don't know. I'm not sure if he's strong enough. I'm not sure if he's able. And Paul is trying to establish a truth here. Just because some don't believe, their unbelief, does it make God unreliable? Does it make God unfaithful? Just because they don't see it, does that make God disappear? No. And this is really important because this is the intro to what he's about to teach. He's about to teach something that is actually fundamentally foundational for all Christians to understand. And by the way, if they did, we'd probably have less hypocrites. So I want to emphasize this is a really important thing we take to heart, that we absorb what he's going to go over because he's about to teach something that honestly it should be like put into a booklet as Christianity 101 mandatory must learn this before you get to go to the next class. This is how important I think this truth is, what he's about to teach. Let me show you what he's going to teach. Now he's going to do it so eloquently with all of the notes and quotes and references to passages from all over the scriptures. But let me show you the truth he's going to present. He says here, let God be found true and every man be found a liar. He says, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and you will be blameless when you judge. He says in verse five, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? If we do unrighteousness and God still does righteousness, what is it saying? He's got a point to make here. He says, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? You know, is God unrighteous because he inflicts wrath on people who do wrong? Is it allowed for the creator of the universe to make a judgment on, hey guys, I'm telling you the way of life. Whatever you sow, that you will reap, right? If you sow good things, you're going to reap these good things. You sow bad things, well, yeah, you're going to reap bad things. I mean, if you sow to yourself in sin, it says you reap in death. And some people, they get all uptight with me when I tell them don't sin. But the Bible teaches us to break off our sin, to repent, turn away from our sin. Repent, by the way, means do a 180 degree turn. If you're walking in a direction towards sin and you are truly repentant, that means you now turned your way from going straight toward the sin to going straight away. And God is, he's righteous. He's allowed to judge. When we're doing what's wrong, he's still God. He can't be unfaithful to who he is. Okay, this is Paul's making this point. Now he says, I'm speaking in human terms, but I'm trying to, to let you understand. May it never be, verse six, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? And he says, but if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? We get a little insight here. Paul is getting some heat that he is being judged as a sinner. Who are you, preacher? You're just a stinking sinner. By the way, when people say that about me, I'm like, got me. In fact, Paul will say he is the chiefest amongst the sinners. He never said, no, I am perfect. I don't sin. Let me tell you the truth that Paul's trying to introduce here. And you tell me if this is important. He says here, why not say, as some slanderously reported, and some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may come. Someone was slandering Paul and saying, he says just do evil so good will come. 
to cover up the evil. By chapter 6, he says, what shall we say then? Should we continue to sin that grace might abound? God forbid it. May it never be. He said, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Now pay attention. This is important. Are we better than they? Not at all. You might want to highlight verse 9. We are not better than anyone. He says, For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written. Now here's his notes. Here's his references for his doctoral thesis. He starts off by quoting the Psalms. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Foundational truth that you need to make a note to. How many righteous people are there down here? None. The Bible teaches there's only one that fulfilled the law fully in righteousness. And who was that? God's son. I mean, as far as the rest of us, there's not even one of us that is righteous. Perfect. Without sin. There is none, it says, who understands. There is none, it says, who seek after God. All have turned aside together and become useless. There's none who does good. In the Hebrew, this means who does good. It's in the tense, present, continuous. Who does good continually, always, always doing good. There's nobody who is always doing good. There is not even one. Now, just to let you know, he's quoting from Psalm 14, the first three verses, which Psalm 14 has a sister psalm, Psalm 53, but he's picking pretty credible parts to back his doctoral thesis. He doesn't just pick one passage. He picks the passage that in the book of Psalms, by the way, I'll give it away for you. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are identical. There is one line in the Hebrew in Psalm 53. It's actually, we break it down differently. We break the first three passages or lines in Hebrew into three verses in Psalm 14, and we make it four verses in Psalm 53. But if you read the words, they're the same. The idea is exactly the same. The Psalm is repeated. Now, is that a typo? You know, the Bible actually repeats a psalm twice. Whole thing. Not just the, the first three verses, by the way. The whole psalm, you can read it, is repeated. Why would God put the same words in twice? You know, I was always taught when a teacher revisits the truth, I'm supposed to be paying attention. And maybe I didn't get it on one of the passes, so they repeat it, so I'll get it on the second pass, right? I mean, it's for emphasis. And the very thing he leads with is, how many of us are righteous? According to the Psalms, not one. He says, verse 13, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is on their lips. Oh, that's a polite comment. How good is their speech? Um, it's like the poison of the most deadly snake is on their lips. Oh, that's just sweet. Give me a kiss. The kiss of death. He said, this is what's coming out of their mouth. But he's quoting from another psalm. So he's actually doing what we would call recalling highlight verses that the Jews knew. They were taught in their schools. They would go, yeah, we know that. But isn't it interesting how sometimes there's a big gap between what we've heard and it's passed into the ear, but sometimes the registration between these two ears, it goes in and it kind of like a, one of those pinball machines, bing, 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 but it never lands in the socket where we actually, ding, light goes on, we get it. 
So what Paul is doing is he's picking the really, these are like, if you were in Jewish culture, you would have learned these Psalms. And he's doing, he's picking like the most common ones that are the highlight versions. And he's starting to put them, hoping that, oh yeah, I know that Psalm. Oh, that's the one where it talks about he sinned and then had to cry to God for forgiveness. And he's starting to do this, collecting them and putting them back to back. Psalm 5, 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, verse 14, Psalm 10, verse 7. He says, whose mouth are full of cursings and bitterness. Then the next one, verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. That's a verse from Isaiah. Paul isn't limited to the Psalms. He hits all the highlights. That's Isaiah 59, verse 7. Then destruction and misery are in their past. The path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36, verse 1. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. The law is speaking to the whole world. It's going to close our mouths to this one fact. You look at verse 20. It says, because by the works of the law, how many people will be justified by doing the law? I mean, you know, those Old Testament commandments in Exodus 20, the 10 commandments that were given, they broke down into the 613 Leviticus. How many of us would be justified with God if we tried to follow the 10 commandments? I don't know about you, but I learned the 10 commandments at Catholic school. I didn't even make it through the first couple and I had already broke them. And I was just a little wee one. I'm pretty sure if we did the whole list, we'd all get busted at least at one or two points. Some of us were lucky if we have one or two we didn't break. But the reality is the law is there pointing out there's not one of us that's righteous. You know, when you read the rules, you're like, busted. You know, did that one. Not supposed to. Yep, I did it. Well, through the law comes the knowledge that I'm not just. And listen to what he says. This is really important. You might run into some Christians today. They say, well, we're Christians, but we're trying to adopt kind of a Judaism uh, approach to our Christianity. So we're Christians, but we follow the law. And so we don't eat pork because that's in the Levitical statutes that they're not allowed to eat the unclean meat and we don't have lobster. We don't have any of these unclean shellfish. And they call themselves Christians, but they're Christians that have adopted the Jewish law as we're going to live under the law. And Paul had just got done saying, how much flesh is justified by the law? How many people got justified by following the law? Zero. None. There is nobody that has fulfilled the law that can say, I'm just, I did, a, except one. Jesus. And he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. See, there was a requirement in the law that there would have to be a perfect lamb that would be offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the imperfect. And Jesus said, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill it. And remember John the Baptist, the guy we were talking about earlier, the one who said, repent. Does anyone remember the other line that he preached all the time when he was in public? There was Jesus walking by. As soon as he sees Jesus, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away sins of the world. That's the guy coming to fulfill the law. You needed a perfect, blameless lamb. 
a sinless one to die for the sinner. The sinner couldn't do it for himself. You had to have the perfect sacrifice to pay for our sin. That's the glorious news of the gospel. So how many of us are righteous according to the law? None. Okay, this is like what I call the quick sum up. Turn to Galatians. I want to show you. All this, what Paul took all these quoting of Psalms to say, he doesn't quote the Psalms. When he's writing to the church at Galatia, he just does this. Galatians 3.22, he says, the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. I mean, if you think you're perfect, just read the rules and you'll find out you broke it somewhere. Okay? You failed. So the scripture basically has put a cork in all our mouths. None of us can say we're perfect. Now, what if the people in the churches actually said we're not perfect? I mean, how many objections have you heard from people saying, oh, those hypocrites? They live like they're perfect. But what if we said, no, we're not perfect? We just serve a guy who paid for our imperfection. And for him, we're very grateful because we're not perfect. That's what we should be telling people, not acting like we're perfect. The scripture shut up everyone under sin so that it says the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody, it says, under the law, being shut up to a faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law is our tutor, our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. See, a tutor has a job of teaching you a lesson. Once the tutor teaches you the lesson and you get it, do you need the tutor? If I said, okay, the point is we're trying to get you to Jesus, right? And we need sometimes a little direction in our lives to get us to him. Maybe someone doesn't know the way. It'd be like if someone, they come to visit our island. I, I use this example because I love when we first moved here, they had only in one place, Javi, they had tropical dreams ice cream. And when they say, how do I get there? You talk about the ice cream, it sounds heavenly. I want to go there. So you want to get on the Highway 19. We call it the Queen Highway, the Belt Highway. And you want to go north all the way to the north end of the island. It's just a little teeny hole in the wall. If you haven't been there, it helps to have some pretty good directions because you can drive right past it and not see it. I mean, it's just tucked in a little teeny. And years ago, it was even harder to find than it is today. They have more signage now. But back then, you had to know where to go. And they didn't really put out too much sandwich board signs. They relied on their reputation. People wanted to go eat it because they heard it was so good. So it was word of mouth. And you had to rely on others to tell you the way. You had to rely on them to point out what to look for. What side of the road is it on? Is it on mountainside or on the ocean side? Malka or Makai? Which side of the road was it on? How far as you're going north? Do you go around the horn and start heading back down south and then you spot it? You need somebody to give you instruction. By the way, this is before they had Google Maps. That would have been really handy back then. But we had to find the thing by having someone give us some instructions. And we had to read the signs along the way. They were like our uh, tutor pointing out the way. Now, you need the tutor to get you there if you've never been there. But what if you've been there and then you've gone back and you've got addicted and you go back a few more times and you've gone over and over and over and you know where it is. Not only do you know where it is, you can lead your friends there. 
And you can even give them good instructions better than you got to get them there. And you got it down. My question to you is, do you need the instructions that you first got? No. Why? Because you know the way. You know where the destination is. You've already been there. You've already arrived at the destination. You partook of the thing. You don't need someone to teach you to get to that destination because you've already been there. And the law, spiritually, is like road signs and directions to point us to the Messiah. It's our tutor to lead us to Christ. But once you come to Christ, once you're there with the creator, do you need the road signs that are out along the path? No, they did their job. Does it make the road sign bad? No, it can still sit there and still point others. It still does its job. But am I now under the law that I go back to follow the road signs? I don't need to. I've already found that paradise. I already found that little slice of heaven. I got already the way to him. I found him. So when people say, you know, what's the purpose of the law? To get us to him. Once you get to him, you don't have to go back to use the signs because you're already where you need to be. Amazing Grace Kona thanks you for listening to today's lesson. You can listen to today's lesson or any of the radio lessons on iTunes titled Celebrate the Lord. And if your travels take you to Kailua Kona on the big island of Hawaii, come visit us. We meet Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. on the beach at the north end of the old Kona Airport. For more information on Amazing Grace Kona, go to our church website at AmazingGraceKona.com. Amazing Grace Kona is the original Calvary Chapel Kona. Mercy never fails to forgive
Jones.